All right. Well, good evening, everybody. Well, we're going to um, we're going to pick up where we left off three three weeks ago. Was it now two weeks ago? And um, with looking at some of God's attributes from Exodus thirty three and thirty four, and uh, we may get through the the ones we're looking at in verse uh, chapter thirty three tonight. And be ready to look at the attributes of chapter 34. And um, so we're going to do that. Uh, maybe we'll begin talking a little bit about uh, the guest speaker two weeks ago that was uh, with you all, R.C. Sproul, and his good discussion on the image of God. And I have some application that I'd like to make off of that into what we're looking at tonight and what we've been looking at. So um, we'll do that. Who needs a handout? Anybody? Valerie made some copies for us. I need one? All right. Maybe if we could keep those, the, any extras towards the back in case somebody comes in late or something. All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray and we'll, we'll jump in. God, we just come before you now as we are studying about you and who you are, and your, your being, and your attributes. And we know that when we endeavor on something like this, we are insufficient for this task, and yet you, in your goodness, have revealed yourself to us in your word. And so I pray that as we study tonight, you would teach us and lead us by your Spirit, that we would come to right conclusions about you and who you are, and then that that would uh, enable us to live lives for your glory and to be a people who are happy in you and uh, who love you and uh, live for you. So I'm asking this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, good. All right, everybody got a handout? Did we get them as we came in? Where did those extra handouts uh, end up? There we go. Okay, all righty. We're talking about now, when what we're looking at here, Exodus 33, you can turn there. And we're in this encounter at uh, Sinai with the Lord and the uh, nation of Israel. Moses is up receiving instruction from the law. The Israelites sin very badly. They make that idol and they worship it. And so um, Moses intercedes for the nation. We've talked about all that. And in the midst of all of this context... um, Moses asks that question in verse 18 of the Lord, uh, please show me your glory. And the Lord said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And then in uh, chapter 34, 
In verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so in these passages, we have the Lord revealing himself, revealing uh, his attributes to Moses, and in that way, uh, displaying his uh, glory to Moses, and uh, so, so that what we can see from that is when we are thinking in terms of wanting to see the glory of God or wanting to grow in our understanding of the glory of God, it's not so much in the time in which we live that it is something that we are going to see visibly with our eyes as we will one day, but that now we see him revealed in his word and in things like his attributes that describe to us who he is and in his works among us and especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is uh, us getting to see the glory of God and studying that in his attributes. Now, here's what I I wanted to begin with this, and I think we did talk about it, but I want to reiterate it and lead to something here. Theologians often divide God's attributes into two general categories, okay? And those categories are incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. And I have that, I think, on your handout here. Incommunicable attributes are those attributes of God that are unique to him. These are attributes he does not and cannot give to us. Okay? And we have studied some of those attributes already in this class. Does anybody think of one? Can anybody think of one? His, yeah, his unchangeableness, his immutability. He does not give that to us. We are changing creatures. Okay? What else? Omniscience would be one. He knows everything, right? Um, and uh, has always known everything and forgets nothing and learns nothing. And that is not something that is given to us. We are limited in our, our knowledge. As a matter of fact, interestingly enough, isn't it, uh, that the the Lord Jesus in his state of humiliation in the incarnation as a man expressed limited knowledge. He actually told the disciples, remember, what, what occasion was that? Yeah, when was this going to happen? Uh, when would be the return? And he said, I don't even know, okay, which baffles theologians and baffles Christians. But the reality is that is an attribute that is unique to humanity. It is, or not unique to humanity, but uh, it is uh, part of human beings that we are not omniscient, okay? And so this is, uh, that is a good one, omniscience. Any others that we talked about or that you could think of? 
Omnipresence would be another one. And then, of course, the other uh, omni, and this I don't think is on your handout, these examples anyway, but omnipresence and omnipotence. Okay, incommunicable. And another one that we talked about in this class, though, was his, uh, the Lord's aseity. Do you remember what that word means? From self or self-existent. That's just a fancy Latin phrase, self-existent. God is the only one who exists in and of himself. It's not brought into existence by another. Okay? And that's an incommunicable attribute. Um, simplicity would be the only other one I think that we've talked about in this class. Uh, that God, Meaning in God's simplicity, remember you can't uh, divide him up into parts or pieces and then fit him together. He's indivisible in his being. That is not true with us at all or any of his creation. So anyway, those are incommunicable attributes. But then there are these. There are these communicable attributes. That's really what we're talking about um, in Exodus 33. What we're going to see is these are communicable attributes, meaning they're those attributes of God that he communicates to us, not just in speech. What they mean by that is that he grants these to us, that we become partakers of these particular attributes of God or uh, have a degree of these attributes. And uh, these are attributes he gives to us. And here's the key to, to thinking about this and why this is important and why I'm belaboring this. These are attributes that uh, he gives to us and he expects us to then display these attributes to people around us, okay? These are communicable attributes. So as an example, we looked at last time, God's goodness. Does God grant to us goodness? Yes. Does he expect us to do good and be good? Yes, he does. To display that goodness. That's unique from his incommunicable attributes. Now, Two weeks ago, you watched the lesson from R.C. Sproul on the image of God in man. And um, he's talking about that, and uh, theologians discuss, like, what all is involved in us being made in the image of man, right? And that very unique aspect of human beings, male and female, uh, Genesis 1, 26, right? Just where God has made us in his image. And there are a number of things that we could talk about with that. He talked about some of the relational component, the intellectual component, reasoning, thinking, that kind of thing. But one thing that is essential that we would have to say, being made in the image of God, that we have been, as he put it, we've been made to reflect his glory. Friends, how do we reflect the glory of God? in keeping with what we're studying right now. Yes, displaying these attributes, right? God says, you cannot see my glory, but I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. I'm going to proclaim these things about who I am, and then you're going to see them in action uh, as I do different things. And we are made in his image, and we are uh, endowed with these we, with these attributes of God, and we are supposed to be living those out and displaying those. 
And as people see that, see us acting in these ways that uh, reflect God's image, it brings him glory. And this is essential for Christians to understand because we are the, all, all human beings, even fallen human beings, even, even human beings that completely reject God and live in sin every day of their lives, display his glory in various ways. You know, a very cruel person can show one act of kindness to his mother and he's displaying an act of kindness, right? Or whatever it could be. But Christians are unique image bearers that we have actually been restored into the image of God to a degree that the rest of the world has not been yet. Through the spirit of God in us and through the new heart that he has given to us. As a matter of fact, look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4. I think that's where I want to go here. Yes, as a matter of fact, I know. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, and in verse 22, he says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Can you see that? You're, you're unique now in this. Whereas the world has not experienced this new creative work of God in the restoration of humanity into a more fuller and complete display of his image. Who we were to be but were not, he makes us into that. And the goal of that then is that we display these uh, communicable attributes of God to this world. So when they see us uh, acting, behaving, speaking, living in this way that displays these, it brings glory to God. Does that make sense? So as we study the attributes of God and we, um, you study the incommunicable attributes of God and really you're only left with one assignment and that is to glory God in, in worshiping him and trusting him and admiring him. But when we think about the communicable attributes of God, especially those that are clearly told to us in other places, you be this way now, right? That's how we bring glory to God through these. We display that image of God. Okay, does that make sense? And um, good. All right, now remember, we were talking about the fact that God is good. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And we launched on that phrase, and we, we actually said that the goodness of God as an attribute is an all-encompassing uh, attribute. In other words, it is uh, all of what God is and what he does and who he is is good, right? Is in this heading of goodness. And I came across... Um, a resource I've had in my library, but I've not done much with it. And it was fr it's from a, a Puritan man, English Puritan, back in the 17th century, Stephen Charnock. And it's called The Existence and Attributes of God. As you can see, this is a pretty 
big book with small writing, and I don't intend to read it cover to cover or anything, but it is a, a, a good resource and valuable. And in, in the tradition of the Puritans, of course, whenever he thinks about a subject, he thinks about that subject. And then he thinks about what he's thought about that subject, and then he thinks about what he thought about what he thought about that subject, and he keeps putting that out and putting that out and putting that out. There is a depth to their writing and stuff that I actually find at times stimulating and unique from anything you will read nowadays. And, uh, but at any rate, he was talking about the goodness of God and the importance of understanding, and actually he was doing this in the context of what we started with in John's gospel where, or no, Luke's gospel where the rich young ruler came up to, to Jesus and called him good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And that sprung us onto this understanding that God is only, only God is good, right? And thinking about the goodness of God, essence. And he was kind of talking about that. And as I put on the handout here, uh, that God has, there are uniquenesses to God's goodness that you and I don't have and cannot have and not reflect. It's almost incommunicable. There are incommunicable ideas to God's goodness that you and I don't get, right? And there's four of them and I have them there. Uh, uh, Sharnak said these are that God is good in a more excellent way than any creature can be good. That there is a goodness to God that is a more excellent goodness than any of his creatures can be. And he gives four ways in which that is. So I put those on here just for us to think about. God is only originally good. That's the first one. God is only originally good. Meaning good of himself. All created goodness is a rivulet from this fountain. In other words, a fountain of God's goodness and from that flows goodness to other things but it is only God who is this originally good but divine goodness or God's goodness has no spring, has no source. All of our goodness is only goodness because it's come from us to God. This is why we should not take undue credit in any way for our goodness. Everything that we do that is good or say that is good or profitable, its source is not us, but God who is given us this good. Isn't that important to remember? Because otherwise, we become proud. So if we have something that we do in, let's say, the gifting of, uh, for the church that is good, and people tell us that it's good, and we don't have a proper understanding that that goodness comes from God who alone is originally good, then we will not reflect the glory to him as we should. This was the problem in the Corinthian church. They were highly gifted, spiritually gifted church. 
but they were proud of their gifts. And Paul had to ask them, what do you have that you have not received? And if you've received it, why are you boasting in it, you see? It's the idea that everything good in us or from us uh, comes from God. Let me read to you this quote from Sharnak. Pure and perfect goodness is only the royal prerogative of God. Goodness is a choice perfection of divine nature. This is the true and genuine character of God. He is good. He is goodness. Good in himself. Good in his essence. Good in the highest degree. Possessing whatsoever is comely, excellent, desirable, the highest good. Because, first good, whatsoever is perfect goodness is God. Whatsoever is truly goodness in any creature is a resemblance of God. He alone is originally good, right? And anything that we have that is good or say that is good is from God. I've, I've used this a lot of times, but it always stuck with me. Dr. Provost from Slavic Gospel used to say, well, anything good that comes from me, God gets all the credit. Anything else, I'll take credit for, you see. Because he understood that it is God who is good. And Jesus said it. Why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, right? Number two from Sharnak uh, on this unique goodness of God is that God only is infinitely good. Infinitely good. And by that, he meant this. God has a boundless goodness that knows no limits. A goodness as infinite as his essence. Can you even, we can't, but I'll ask the question just for the sake of asking it so we can think about this. Can you even conceive of a being whose goodness is unsearchable? It's infinite. There's nothing, there's no end to it. A goodness as infinite as his essence. A goodness that is boundless and knows no limits. Think about that kind of goodness. This means that if you explore God with just the thought of saying, I want to think about and know the goodness of God, it would be an exploration that would have no end. Right? A trail, a road that keeps on going. You never will fully explore all the depths of the goodness of God. And the reason this is important to understand and can be very practical for us is this. We have things in this world that are good. They have a goodness in them. That they can have a, an enjoyability to them. They can have, um, you know, a glory to them, so to speak. But it's limited, isn't it? All of the gifts of God's goodness in this life have limits and boundaries. And so we never want to make those things 
these good gifts of God the ultimate to us. Does that make sense? Because we're always going to be left empty in the end. Even in the best of good relationships, you get a good marriage, right? And a good relation, even in the best of marriages, there's a limit to the goodness of it. There's an end to it. So that anything in this world that replaces our pursuit of the goodness of God or finding that enjoyment of God is always going to leave us empty. But with God being the focus and intent of our goodness with this infinite kind of goodness, then the exploration of God then is limitless and we will wake up every day with reminders of the goodness of God in various ways, right? Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, we can't let our affections become unduly attached to the goodness and the good things of this world, though they are good. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God. And these things are good and given to us to enjoy. But we have to understand that it is the giver. These are only to reflect the goodness of the giver and always be drawing us back to the goodness of the giver. And these things will always, if they become the ultimate object of our you know, desires and passions, they will leave us empty. The world is so disappointing. It's a disappointing place. Even the good things in it will leave you empty and disappointed. It is only God in the end, friends, who has this kind of goodness that is uh, infinitely good, right? And then God is only perfectly good. God is only perfectly good. By that, he means this. God has the whole nature of goodness, not only some beams that may admit of increase of degree. His goodness, as all of his attributes would be considered, are whole and complete and perfect. And then God only is immutably good. Other things may be perpetually good by supernatural power, but not immutably good in their own nature. The goodness of God endureth forever. This is so important because um, what people, what Christian people need to know, especially when times get bad, is they have to remember this goodness, right? That it is unchangeable. The goodness of God is unchangeable. It never changed. Even if the circumstances in which somebody finds themselves are not good, that there is behind these circumstances an immutably good God who is mysteriously and powerfully working these bad circumstances for the good of his people. And that what I just said resonate will resonate with people who have walked through extremely dark times where the goodness of God, they, whether they verbalized it or not, was in question in their mind at times. Where they would ask, if God is good, why this? And that question would rise in their mind and some of you in this room, I'm sure, had to walk through that and had to remind yourself 
that God is good. I might have shared this, about, but there's a book out there. I don't have it, but it's for children, and it's called The Moon is Always Round or something to that effect. And it was written by a man who they had a son and uh, a little boy, and then the wife was pregnant. She went to full term. They went into delivery thinking everything's fine, deliver the baby, and it's a stillborn baby. And so, of course, they're crushed, absolutely devastated by this. And the, the dad is driving along with his son. And the, the little boy is asking why the daughter isn't coming home or whatever it was. And uh, some, somehow the conversation ensued where uh, it was a cloudy night. And you could not, uh, you could only see a part of the moon. It was like blocked. And he tried to explain to his son about God's goodness. Like, the, the moon is always round, even if the clouds are blocking part of the moon, son. The moon is always round. That's God's goodness. God is always good, right? God is always good. He is immutably good, no matter what is happening. So, okay, well, that is God's goodness, um, and there are probably many more things that we could say, obviously, about his infinite goodness, but we'll leave it at that. Any, anything up to this point, any thoughts, comments, questions? Okay. All right, let's, um, now let's talk about God's grace and mercy. So if you see it, Exodus 33 says, uh, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In chapter 34, he also says that he is a, a God merciful and gracious. Okay, so we're talking about God's grace and mercy as his attributes. Uh, I have two quotations here under both grace and mercy from MacArthur and Mayhew's comment, uh, not commentary, but um, systematic theology. It says, God's grace describes God as perfectly bestowing favor on those who cannot merit it because they have forsaken it and are under the sentence of divine condemnation. Grace is simply favor. So in itself does not include any basis in merit or lack of merit. To be gracious is to be merciful, compassionate, or favorably inclined towards someone or something. And then mercy, also translated as compassionate in our scriptures. God's mercy describes him as perfectly having deep compassion for creatures, such that he demonstrates benevolent goodness to those in a pitiable or miserable condition, even though they do not deserve it. Uh, this definition is partly based on the words in the original text of the Bible for mercy. And then as with grace, this perfection does not consider the merit or lack of merit of the people to whom God gives mercy. And the reason that is, is because no one deserves either. Okay, so that's what he's saying. Now, when we think about grace, that favorable inclination towards one or compassion or merciful, and then you have mercy as compassion and such, you can see that these words are very close together uh, in meaning. And uh, maybe with some slight nuances, but they are very close uh, in, in meaning. 
And uh, some have described grace as uh, God uh, giving what someone does not deserve and whereas mercy is withholding from what, someone what they deserve. And that could, there could be much in that understanding of grace and mercy uh, in thinking about this. Um, there are two ways in which we see God's grace and mercy displayed. Oh, one thing I was going to draw out, that idea of mercy, if there, if there are distinctions, mercy does seem to uh, have more of that element of wanting to relieve the suffering of someone or some, seeing somebody in a pitiable condition and doing something to relieve it. So in the body of Christ, the Spirit gives some the gift of mercy. These are people who very much are in tuned with suffering people and they are inclined to, by the Spirit, be doing something about this pitiable condition to relieve it, okay? So uh, grace and mercy, but, but very close connected, very much in the same camp, so to speak. Now, I'm dividing grace and mercy into two separate ways here. Uh, the first one is general grace and mercy that God displays. So God is gracious and he's merciful. It's part of his being. It's who he is. And he displays grace and mercy generally, I think, to all human beings. In what ways does he do that? Yeah, even people who reject him get to wake up, right? Uh, he, what else? Dave, yeah. Well, he doesn't let anybody really know the other person in any thorough way. Okay. He expose everybody to, to other people. Huh, yeah. A hidden sin with yes. a man that if it was exposed to other people, yeah. you in that way. Right, okay, yeah, I never even thought of that, but that's true. It's gracious in that way, yeah, Sandy. Yeah. He could. Right. He's waiting by the serpent. Second Peter three nine, I think. He's waiting. He's not slow about his promise for some count slowness, but he's forbearing towards us. Yes. He doesn't want anybody to perish. Right. To me, that's mercy. Yes. Right, exactly. Good. Good. Yeah. And one more. Yep. Very basic, right? Jesus talks about this love your enemies. Uh, look at how God even does this. There are his enemies, and yet what does he do? He provides them with basic necessities. And, you know, and that's, uh, that is evidence of grace and mercy. And uh, again, it doesn't take into consideration merit because no one merits it. No one merits. The misery that human beings are in, they are in of their own doing. We've shown that from Adam, right? And Adam all sinned and... Uh, that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, no one deserves either of these, but God is gracious and he displays it generally to all of his creation and has been doing this. I mean, you think about, we, we looked at um, Cain and Abel this morning, remember? And Cain went off and he was all freaked out because now everybody was going to want to kill him. And God, I mean, you read that and you're like, I don't understand why he even did it. Other than to display this grace, he put upon Cain that mark so that nobody could, right? So it's, it's this idea of grace. He's been showing this general favor to all. Now, but there is a saving grace and mercy of God 
that is selective and sovereign. Okay? It's selective and sovereign. And it's brought out here in Exodus chapter 33. And he says, he doesn't just say, I'm gracious and and merciful in here. But he puts this in a verbal form, isn't it? I will be gracious to whom I will. And that's in verse 19. And I will show mercy on whom I will. Remember what Moses was asking for. He was asking for mercy and grace to the children of Israel. And God says, that's my prerogative. I will show some mercy whom I will. And implication is others I will leave off to themselves. But it is my prerogative. You know, you think about, uh, you think about the story of, what was his name? Uzzah, one of the priests. And remember when they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem? They were all happy. But he, they stumbled and he reached out and he grabs it to keep it from falling. And God struck him dead. And yet... Aaron, the priest of the Jews, when Moses was on the mountain, made an idol and commanded the people to worship it. And God spared him. I will have mercy on whom I will. I will. Whomever I will. And I'll show compassion on whom I will. Now, if we remember that no one deserved it, then we won't wrestle with that very much, right? Because remember, when we're talking about grace and we're talking about mercy, the, the merit of the person receiving it is irrelevant because no one had it. Nobody deserves grace or mercy. That's the nature of those two words, right? So it's sovereign. I'm gonna, I want us to look just for a few minutes at where the Apostle Paul uses this phrase, he actually quotes from it. Sometimes when you're studying the Bible, the important thing to do is if, if a New Testament author takes that passage, if you're in the Old Testament, New Testament author takes that passage and uses it, it will help you if you will look at that passage yourself and check it out. So everybody turn to Romans chapter 9. We'll be in this passage in just a few months, studying it in detail on Sunday mornings. And Paul is addressing, of course, the issue with uh, the Jewish people and the fact that the majority of them have rejected Christ and what, is that, what implications does that have for God's promises to them and um, what about all the, the things he said. He said in verse 6, um, chapter 9, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. 
As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Right there you have a, an expression there in that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. You have this expression from Malachi 1-2 of a sovereign and selective grace and mercy. Do you not? Jacob I loved in this redeeming special way. Uh, Esau I let go to himself essentially is what the idea is. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Because that's the first thing people think, right? Wait a minute. You're selectively gracious and merciful to people on whom you will? Well, that sounds unjust, right? Isn't it natural to think that way? By no means. For, and here it is now, he's going to draw from Exodus 33 to show that this is who God is. He says, for, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is rooted in my will since no one deserves it. Jacob Esau is an example. And I choose to show it to Jacob and not to Esau. That's my divine prerogative. I show grace to whom I will and mercy to whom I will, and the others I leave off. Verse 16, so then it depends, it, that is salvation, mercy, grace, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So in other words, what we see is God has the sovereign Ability. He has the sovereignty that uh, he gets to show selective grace and mercy. When we say that God is gracious and merciful, he is in his being and in his totality. And he displays that grace and mercy by showing it to some and not to others. You see what I mean? So God has what we call in theology a general grace for all mankind that he shows and a general mercy for all mankind. Hospitals are filled with people receiving general mercy from God and that they get healed from different illnesses, infirmities, pain medications, cancer treatments, and yet they don't give God the time of day. That's general mercy. But then there is specific sovereign grace and mercy that he shows to people. And in Ephesians chapter 1, which I don't have on here, this was all this purpose in God doing this is to put on display in us as we are standing with him for eternity in glory, saved people for eternity. This is to display his glorious grace and mercy that he has, okay? All right, we'll go on. That's it now, so I'm just going to ask for questions or comments. Yeah, Betty. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think in those ways, especially as parents, you know, or uh, you parents, grandparents, and you you have children that you're not 
seen evidence of God's mercy in their life, that's a challenge. And there's no, I mean, there's no saying something that makes that better, right? But it does give the hope in that, to me anyway, that if I know certain people that their hearts are so hardened against God that left to them, of course, they won't turn. But it doesn't depend on them. It depends on God. So that there's no case that I know that's ever hopeless. We pray to God to do the work he would need to do. So that's how I, that helps me actually, because if it were, if it did depend on human will, as it says here, the problem with that is we all know people whose wills are just like, you're not changing my mind. You've given me all the evidence. You've given me all these things. I don't care. I want the world. I want this. You're not changing my mind. And I can look at them and say, one day you may be standing in front of people teaching them the Bible and you don't even know it yet because it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. So this is, to me, this is the only way we have hope for our loved ones, is that God is the one that can and, and does bestow mercy on them. So. Yes, yes. Right. That's right. Yeah, Flory. Yeah. Yeah. That's a constant reminder, at least for me, that God's goodness and mercy. Yep. Oh, that is the, to me, that is the number one biblical illustration of this truth is the Apostle Paul and, um, and the way God says, just boom. And immediately, Paul was like, who are you, Lord? <laughs> you know, it's like, I'll do whatever now. There was no reasoning this out and making a decision or what. It was just like, boom, sovereign grace. And he follows the Lord. That's right. Yeah, Bill. And on that same point, you have all these people that Jesus healed mm. and even the apostles healed. But we have uh, no indication <clears throat> Yeah. Healing, yep. They ever followed him after that. That's right. Yeah. In Paul's instance, he did. Mm-hmm. I mean, his eyes were open and yeah. he realized who he was dealing with. Yep. Yeah, at the end of John's gospel, well, be, before the, the cross, uh, um, John says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be filled, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he, that is God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. In other words, there's this judicial hardening that is the will of God to do and uh, in his sovereignty to do. And yet even in all of this, Again, we remember in a, that he, it is in the, he is good in all he does. 
So whenever we're trailing some of these doctrines, we're questioning this, we can't let it allow it to question our goodness or God's goodness, right? We have to, this is good. This is right. This is the way it should be done because God is doing it this way. Yeah. Yeah, Vivi. Yeah. But that's because God was protecting his people. Well, he certainly had that plan. His yeah. Right. Yeah, it was all part of his obvious his plan to bring glory to himself to show the deliverance and um of the Israelites there, yeah. And uh, as a matter of fact in Romans 9 he went right we stopped where he goes on to talk about Pharaoh and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And, um, yeah, Sandy. God gives us lots of choices. Mm-hmm. We see it all through the Bible, and it's patience and it's goodness. Mm-hmm. I think of, I think it's Romans 1 and 2, where all the evidence, mm-hmm. you see all the evidence in yep. creation. Yep, yep. And you, you just sense that God is working. He's, he's trying to accomplish for their good. For right. Their Yes. And eventually, finally, mm-hmm. God gives them over to the reprobate Yeah, so you have this, you have that seeming paradox in Scripture between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So that it is, it is not God's fault, right, that a person rejects him. They do this of their own accord, Right. And, um, and so we, we do, we have that, that paradox there, but, um, but yeah, but apart from his sovereign grace and mercy, we would all reject him. So I think we come to the place where we have to say, the reason I choose Jesus is because he chose me, right? That's where we have to come to that conclusion. There's a sovereignty in the, in grace and, and mercy that comes to that. He has worked that in me, so... One more, Dave, yeah. On God's goodness, it seems to me that after all the thousands of years of the law, no one was good, right? Right. Everyone lived a perfect life, so God says, well, I'm going to have to do it myself. And he lives a human life and does it perfectly, which he did himself, and it paid the price himself. But even after we receive Jesus, we still can't live a good life. Mm-hmm. And he says, I'm going to have to do it myself. Mm-hmm. gives us his Holy Spirit. So mm-hmm. all real goodness is yes. still God alone. That's right. right. It is his, himself doing it through us. Yeah. And not our goodness. It's his goodness. Yeah. It seems to me right. Right. Oh, that is it. Yeah. And that's what I think we, we mentioned that just anything good that comes from us we acknowledge is the result of God's work in us. So... All right, good. Well, let's, uh, next week we'll start looking at uh, Exodus 34 and some of the things that God says about himself there and his attributes. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. And, you know, every person, Lord, I think in this room is looking to Jesus and, and dwelt by his spirit and wanting to grow and wanting to learn about you. And so that is just evidence of your grace, your mercy, and your goodness to us. 
and we pray for it. We even pray to be able to experience more of it in our lives because, uh, Lord, it is a sure mark of grace to desire more. So keep us desiring and pursuing you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, everybody.